Hello and welcome to Systematically. So we're still doing Apocalypse Editions. I hope you've been enjoying them. We've talked recently to Joshua Burns at Marquette. We did an episode about uh, spiritual communion with Joe Mudd. They've, these have all been great. I'm, I'm really enjoying doing these. We're doing them rapid fire. So I'm, I hope they're filling your Corona Tide hours. And today we have another treat. We have another old Marquette friend of mine. We have Samantha Miller. Hey there. Hi. Uh, Samantha, will you tell our listeners a little bit about you and, and, and what, you, what you do and who you are? Hi. So uh, I, um, I don't know what to say. I currently teach at uh, Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana. I, uh, my field is early church history. My person is John Chrysostom who uh, is a dear friend of mine, even though he's been dead 1,600 years. And uh, I spend a lot of time with him and with the Desert Saints, who we'll be talking about, and uh, write about demonology in particular, how Chrysostom thinks about demons in relation to virtue and salvation and anthropology and, and a few other things. Um, and then I also, so I teach a lot of early church history. I also teach spiritual formation courses and spirituality, and occasionally a Greek class uh, at Anderson. Um, out here. Yeah, that's, that's what I do right now. That's great. Um, and yeah, you know, we're taking our, our collective isolation as, uh, as our topic today. So we're going to talk a little bit about Christian ascetic and spiritual practices of isolation. And, and particularly, we're going to focus today on, on their history. Uh, we have a special guest coming up, too, who's going to be able to talk um, about it uh, kind of in another lane. But I'll let that be a surprise for next time. Uh, and then you have had some exciting developments. You're actually headed off to a, to a new gig here uh, pretty soon. Uh, what's that? So I'll be starting uh, this coming fall at Whitworth University in uh, Spokane, Washington. I'll still be teaching early church history and whatever else as, as undergrad theology professors do teaching intro Bible and all the other things that fill out gen ed requirements and whatnot. Um, but really excited to be starting. It's a Presbyterian school up in Spokane and a really good, rigorous Christian liberal arts school that I'm, I'm really excited to join this summer. But it is in Washington. And so I, my moving details are suddenly very exciting. Why? What's going on in Washington? It, it's sort of one of the epicenters of the coronavirus. Oh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I guess that's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm playing stupid, obviously, but um, the yeah, that's that's got to be interesting. To like, on the one hand, like presumably they're going to fire up classes in late August, early September. Yeah. So, I mean, the calendar is early September, so I'm hoping that everything, like like everywhere else in the country, hopefully we all, I mean, who knows with higher ed at this point, we're all online right now, um, but I'm hoping everything goes back to, to much more normal and in person this fall. So oh, that, we'll would see. Be, that would be really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, and, 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 the, and in between, all you have to do is like move all the way across the country. Right. Change banks, change doctors, all those things. All those things. Changing doctors is going to be real fun right now. <laughs> Why? What are they up to? <laughs> Nothing, right? No, they're not busy at all. Super easy um, to patient appointments. Oh, my. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, I mean, it is exciting. It is exciting. Yeah. That sounds like a, um, a, you are, you're something of an outdoorsy person. Uh, more than a little. Yeah, I love being outdoors. So uh, I led, uh, I've guided, I worked as a wilderness guide for several summers in seminary and grad school, um, led backpacking and canoeing trips. And I still do when I can. I take students out um, every year and uh, you can mostly find me outside in my hammock uh, reading or canoeing or whatever. Just I, I will be outdoors as much as possible. And I don't, um, I don't mean to disparage the great state of Kansas, but it, it's my yeah. understanding. It's or Indiana, I mean, excuse me. Uh, but it's my understanding that the the hiking in Washington is um, supposed to be a, a little better. It it did look like that. I I had never been until my interview, and uh, I was pretty ecstatic about where I'm yeah. headed. I got to say, they have a, a river and a waterfall in the middle of their downtown, and uh, Indiana's a little flatter. A little bit flatter, yeah. Not totally flat, but flat flatter. Where I um, am, just completely flat. Oh, is it really? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, uh, well, there's, there's Indiana anecdotes I could tell, but, uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll let it go. The, the, the one that's actually sort of funny is, uh, my, some of my dad, my dad grew up in Southern California and, and a member of, of his sibling cohort ended up moving to Crawfordsville, Indiana. Oh, yeah. Um, 
which is like, oh, I don't know what, like 45 minutes from where Purdue is or yeah. something like yeah. that. <clears throat> um, and a uh, cute little town. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, they had newly moved there and they were checking out restaurants and they went to this, this Mexican food place and it was really good. Uh, and so they started, they started talking to the owners, about you know, how, how'd you guys end up here and stuff? And they said, um, well, you know, we live in Riverside, California, which is in Southern California, which is where my aunt and uncle had lived previously. And, uh, the whole family moved out here and we, we started this restaurant. And then as they got to talking, they found out that their, uh, that their family had had some kind of rift over the running of this restaurant. And so there was a, uh, there was a, a divide. And the other half of the family went and started another restaurant in town. And so my, uh, my aunt and uncle always talk about how the, the two best Mexican food places they've ever been to are in Crawfordsville, Indiana. And they found them after they left Southern California. <laughs> That's hilarious. So if, if you're ever in Crawfordsville, Indiana, odds are if you try a Mexican place, the odds are it's good because there's two of them. That's great. <laughs> anyway, that's my, that's my Indiana <laughs> anecdote. Um, well, that's, that's, uh, that's exciting stuff. I, I wish you all the best with the move. That's stressful under any circumstances. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's exciting. So that helps temper the uncertainty quite a bit. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. Well, so let's dive, let's dive into our topic. Um, I, I have in, in my head a sort of uh, a, a kind of imagistic collage of that there are Christian practices, uh, ascetic and spiritual of isolation. You know, I've read like, I've read a Kathleen Norris book once mm-hmm. or twice. Um, so I have some notion, but, uh, but I don't know a lot about the sort of concrete particulars, either in terms of history or in terms of the theology driving, emerging out of um, the, the sort of origination of Christian spiritual practices of, of isolation, whether individual or uh, communal. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've read a little bit of, um, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the title now, uh, the life of St. Anthony, right. Um, but, but, you know, that's, uh, that's a, a, a one inch frame (laughs) into, into a, a particular moment and a particular, um, way of thinking about that. So, what are sort of the circumstances, for example, uh, of the Desert Fathers? Well, how does that thing happen in the early church? Yeah. Um, so Antony is a great way in. Antony is sort of our poster child for them. And people often think he's the first. And he's not. Antony's not, not actually the first. We know this because Athanasius writes that he goes and apprentices himself to a holy man already in the desert. So mm-hmm. he can't possibly be the first, but he is the poster child. He is the one that everyone sort of looks to as the model and, uh, and sort of certainly the first well-known saint on the desert. Uh, but it starts, so the sort of traditional narrative is that, so after Jesus, Christians were persecuted, right? Um, so the first couple centuries of the church, there was, um, both uh, state-sponsored and just sort of sporadic local persecutions, but Christians were dying because they were Christian, um, because the Romans were suspicious uh, of all sorts of their practices, because um, the Christian allegiance to someone other than Caesar was threatening. Uh, Emperors tend not to like competition, Um, so they would try to squelch them. Um, they saying, Jesus, saying Jesus is Lord has a certain negative implication vis-a-vis Caesar, right? Yes, because you're right. So if everyone was supposed to be saying Caesar is Lord for Christians to say Jesus is Lord was to say Caesar is not. And, uh, and emperors don't like that very much. So, um, so they went after the Christians. And, and not it wasn't like 200 years of, of unceasing persecution. Um, it would sort of break out in different places at different times and um, sometimes state-sponsored and sometimes not. Sometimes it was more um, almost McCarthy-ish with like neighbors naming each other and whatnot. Um, but uh, but it's happening, you know, and they weren't uh, contributing to the economy because they weren't buying the sacrifices and the religious cults and all the things. So there's persecution going on and it wasn't until 313, uh, Constantine, the emperor, uh, 311, he sort of has this conversion to Christianity in 313. He makes Christianity legal. 
in the empire. And the narrative is that, well, once Christianity is legal, they, you don't know how to be a devoted Christian anymore. Christians are trying to answer this question. Well, when there were martyrs, it was really obvious. The martyrs were the heroes. They were the athletes for Christ. They were the ones who gave everything and therefore were particularly holy. They were committed. They were witness. I mean, martyr is just the Greek word for testify or witness. Um, and so they were, they were the ones. And now you couldn't be martyred once Christianity is legal. And so people wonder, well, how, how then do you know you're an extreme Christian? How do you know what commitment looks like? The only, uh, it's, it's much more nuanced than that. And partly this is because we know Antony uh, lives before the legalization of Christianity. So we, we know it's happening well before Christianity is legal. So that's not the only reason. That is when it starts to spread like wildfire. Um, so there is a connection. It's just more nuanced than the, than the simple narrative. So, so what, are, what, are some of the, what are some of the other factors then? Um, some of it is uh, just, so, the re- so people are going out to the desert um, just in this sense of call to, uh, to live in isolation to live <clears throat> particularly this sort of isolated life and there's different ways of living out in the desert i can talk about in a minute um but they go out the desert is a harsh place the wilderness is a harsh place in general and when we're in harsh environments lots of things happen you have to your your focus gets sharpened on things so um actually a contemporary author named belden lane talks about um wilderness practices as uh, increasing attention and indifference you're learning to care about the things that really matter and not to care about the things that don't. Because when you're in a harsh uh, environment, either physically or metaphorically, your focus gets sharpened real quick to survival. And so what do I need to do to make it the next five minutes? And you'll learn to pay attention to those things as opposed to, you know, all the other things that don't matter. You know, all the conversations about the color of the carpet in the sanctuary suddenly don't matter in the midst of coronavirus. Um, just not important. Um, yeah. So that happens. So the, so there's a sense of going out to to live in that harshness to pursue God sort of single-mindedly in that uh, and learning to care about the things that matter and, and to not care about the things that don't. So the word uh, apatheia would be the indifference there is the... Um, learning to detach from the things of the world which is their goal out there is there to um a a sort of healthy detachment a a sense of proper ordering of our loves if i'm Mm. borrowing augustine which is a little bit too late but yeah yeah the the idea holds um is there a is is there a an implicit i mean so beyond the intermittent persecution is there a, a an implicit uh, repudiation of a decadent Hellenistic culture at work too, or, um, or, yes. or maybe that's sort of Im- imputing too much. I don't know. No, there's definitely that. Um, there were, especially that's it. That becomes especially true once the church and the state become united. Um, that is definitely one of the reasons they go out because then not just the culture around them, but like their culture, then suddenly Christians are becoming decadent and um, wealthy and power. And, and so that goes again to the, this is how you know you're a committed Christian. You're, you're repudiating mm-hmm. that. Um, that was happening before as well. Um, they also understood. So the other thing is that scripture has a long tradition of going into the desert. And so like uh, the Israelites have to wander. And, and one of the ways to read that is to say, well, they're learning to be the kind of people God wants them to be. They're learning to be God's people. And so there's a preparation element. Uh, Jesus goes out into the desert for 40 days before, uh, after his baptism, before his ministry starts as a, <clears throat> we talk about that as a preparation also, uh, preparation for ministry, learning to be who he is. Um, so is one of the ways you can say that. Um, John the Baptist, Elijah, there's all these people in scriptures. There's already a tradition and they're following that tradition as well. Um, and Antony specifically is following scripture, not necessarily those examples, but his whole story is that he walks by a church and, and hears someone reading the gospel, um, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And he hears that and says, oh, well, I must take that literally. So I must sell all that I have and give to the poor. And he does, but he saves a little bit for his sister because his parents were, were dead and he was in charge of his sister. And 
Uh, and then he goes by a church again and here's the the gospel you know don't worry about tomorrow it has enough trouble of its own and he says oh my goodness i've been worrying about tomorrow by caring for my sister and so he gives his sister to the nuns and sells the rest of everything he has and wanders off into the desert so there's a real strong tie to scripture for a lot of these folks as well Mm -hmm. Uh, and the last bit being that in both from scripture and just from sort of culturally they assumed that the desert was a place where demons would be. So you could go out and fight demons living there and sort of um, in the resistance, become more holy, become more who God wants you to be um, in fighting the demons. And also that's where you could meet God because in scripture, that's where God is often or leads people often. So all of these reasons are people, people going out to the desert. Mm -hmm. And then um, you talked, you, you talked about it getting, a kind of head of steam at one point. So how does that, how does that transition happen? How, how does this go from uh, certain figures sort of withdrawing from, I guess, what we might think of sort of ancient urban life into yeah. the wilderness? Uh, how, how, does it, how does it come to be that this develops a kind of gravitational pull for, for other Christians? Yeah, I think that's where the narrative really is, is once it becomes legal, once Christianity becomes legal, there's just, and the church starts to be more, more decadent and more powerful. There's a lot of people just trying, like all through history, those are the moments the church screams for reform. And this is one of the early ones. Um, after this, we'll get, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, you get the, the reforms of Cluny, and then you get the, the Cistercians, and like over and over, all these sense of reform as soon as the church gets more wealth, more property, more power. Um, and this is just sort of the first <clears throat> of those movements where. It just starts to spread out. But it's also people like Antony, whose story gets popularized, and everyone wants to go and imitate them. So Athanasius writes the life of Antony, and people see him, and they, they um, see him as holy, and he is, um, and they want to go out and imitate. They want to also find that single-minded devotion. And uh, I would say some people probably had a better sense of what that meant than others. Um, you know, once it becomes a thing, people go out, but they don't realize what that might actually entail or how hard that might actually be. I remember as an undergraduate thinking, I would love, I fell in love with these desert scenes thinking these, I could do that. I could be this people. And I've lived in some isolation in the last few years. And I, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I don't want to be <laughs> as isolated as they were. Um, it actually might be harder than, than we think. But yeah, it spread from all the, and not just Anthony, but there were lots of stories and lots of sayings. So people would go out and collect sayings from these people. Um, they would say, give me a word, Abba or Ama. And they would collect the sayings and you'd, you'd get this wisdom and then people would want to go again, imitate. There's a sort of a celebrity factor too. Yeah, that's interesting. So they, the, what's the, so if we're, if we're going to talk about these sayings, what's the, What's the theology that emerges out of this, right? So it's not just people going and doing the practice, but there's a generation of a kind of reflection on the practice, mm-hmm. both because people are drawing it out of them and also because like human beings make meaning out of stuff. And yeah. so what's the character or characters, if there's schools, of the theology that emerges early on? Ooh, that's a good question. Um... Well, let's start with demons. Yeah, yeah. It's something you know a little bit about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so what? What's the? Uh, you know, it's one thing to sort of have a comic book idea of I'm going to go out into the des- into the desert and and battle demons, but but concretely, you know, how did how did they think about that? What what did that involve for a person on their own or in a very small community of people to be in extremis in the desert doing that kind of spiritual battle? Yeah. Um... They what's really interesting about them is they start to actually cast their anthropology in terms of demonology. Interesting. Um, so they, the sayings, the reflection on this would be people would go out and the first thing to say is that they're actually, they're not moderns. So when they say they're going out to fight demons, they mean they're going out to fight demons. Um, the demons are reality for them. They're just an assumed, um, there were, there were spirits in the world and for Christians, they, these evil spirits were demons. This is, this is what they were. Um, and they could cause, so their understanding of demons is that they are fallen angels. Um, a couple, you know, there's a couple different narratives of that floating around in the ancient world, uh, ancient Christianity. But by, by, the, by the time of the desert saints, um, it's sort of this fall because of pride. It's not, not the watcher's myth of, of 
um, Enoch, but um, they are, they're fallen angels, so they're ontologically the same thing as angels are, but they are incurably evil by choice, um, and they fell because of pride or whatever, so they're, they're, and then they're just roaming the world, and they are, some people, it's, it's actually really interesting, there's an article called How Thin is a Demon, where there are some traditions that would say, actually, the demons have bodies, um, spiritual bodies, but bodies they're not bodiless and then there are other traditions that'll say no they are bodiless so it's it's sort of a question of what are these spiritual beings there but Antony's stories have him being physically beat up by demons mm. and it's fascinating um, most of the stories are about temptation so demons tempt and deceive but can't do anything else but then you do get these other stories where Anthony like comes out with bruises and black eyes and everything scratches. And if you just Google woodcuts of Anthony with the demons, you just get these really horrendous images of like his beard being pulled out and um, demons beating up on him. Um, and yet Anthony is always saying, uh, I think in his letters also, yeah, also in his letters, not just Athanasius's version of him, um, that, well, the demons can't actually harm you. They can't do, they can't harm your salvation. They can't harm your soul. All they can do is tempt and deceive and like beat you up a little bit. Um, but it's, it's not true harm because that's about your sin and your virtue. And those are about the choices you make. So pretty quickly, all of these stories about demons become about resistance to demons and about um, how you pay attention to the different thoughts and um, the desert traditions. We end up with the eight thoughts of Agrius sort of uh, systematizes them a little bit more, or he sort of records them uh, among the first to record them. But these thoughts that would draw us away from God, away from a single-minded devotion to God, and the demons are these demons who are um, actively tempting and deceiving away from them. So there's all these saying stories about demons appearing as uh, as women or as young boys or um, or as uh, other monks or whatever, and, and the monks having to discern truth and what is not, not truth. Wow. But it's all about their virtue and their anthropology, even when they're talking about this, which is really interesting. How does, and I don't know if this is something that, that you've, you've looked at, but you, earlier you, you talked about apatheia, and just now you also talked about this kind of notion that, well, demons can't really hurt you because they might you know, afflict your body or, or, or tempt you or, or deceive you. They can't really get at this kind of core thing that's important. So that's someone with philosophical training like me, all my stoicism bells go yes. off, yeah. right? So what's the relationship between this, this tradition of, of Christian practice and stoicism? I'm not sure what direct links there are. Okay. Um, I know once we get to Chrysostom, he, he definitely makes the same argument in very stoic categories and language. Um, and so it's floating around out there. I just don't, I, I ha it's really hard to figure out because of the way the sayings come to us, any direct, direct links from this tradition to any other tradition at all. Um, but it is definitely, there are Stoic ideas here, but they're also Christianized in that Christ is the one who makes it possible to discern. Um, the Holy Spirit is helping to discern. And so it, it is, it's a Christianized version, if nothing else, but it, I, it's also more than that. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, my, my ancient philosophy uh, memory is not great. But if if I remember correctly, around this time, Stoicism is having something of a, a of a renaissance, um, in, uh, in in the sort of Mediterranean region, both in North Africa and and also in like Egypt and Anatolia and stuff. Um, so it, it may just be that uh, these these were kind of vernacular intellectual categories. Yeah. Um, and so and so trying to draw some kind of textual link might be might be asking too much. Yeah. Um, and cause you know, we, <laughs> we've, we've got, we've got like the creed of Nicaea and Constantinople. So we know, we know that Christians weren't averse to drawing on contemporary right. philosophical categories, uh, and adapting them to their purposes. But anyway, just maybe, made me think of it. So, um, okay. So, so that's the sort of the demonology part. And, and you, you've said a couple times that the, the demonology informs the anthropology. So, so what's the anthropology 
at work. Yeah, um, and it's not so. I wouldn't necessarily necessarily say informs as much as they have an anthropology that they're talking about in demonological language. Ah, okay. Right. I think that's more the direction I see it going. Um, their anthropology as um, partly, I'm, I'm also thinking like this is the stuff I do with Chrysostom, and so I'm trying to to make sure I distinguish what I know of him, and I know less on this with the Desert Saints, um, but they are. Their anthropology is such that they are free and self-determining beings, human beings, so that all of their sin and all of their virtue is choice. And um, they're aiming at this single-mindedness by being out in the desert, this single-minded um, devotion to God and apatheia to everything else. Um, and they're... It's... Christ has made that possible, but they don't talk a lot about that in the sayings and stuff. It's, Interesting. They're, it's, it's, uh, their sayings are really practical, right? Yeah. Um, they don't tend to be, they don't tend to be philosophical or theological in the way that you get treatises from Nyssa or um, Gregory, the other Gregory, or um, yeah, yeah. Or system or whomever who's going to be able to talk in this other language, um, or even Methodius. So I don't really know what to say exactly about what their anthropology is, except to say it's interesting that they <clears throat> that they talk about demons as the way of talking about who they are and mm. how they struggle against demons and how they can win and they can resist. And so most of what you get, what you can infer from that is this sense of soul that that demons can't touch, that there's something in humans that is free and able to choose God or to choose demons um or to give into deception and temptation that's so interesting we we had ann carpenter on uh, a few episodes ago to talk about balthazar's read of the apocalypse of john mm. and one of the points that she was making in there is the way in which balthazar in the theodrama sees the so, so one of the big points he makes when he's when he's glossing the book of revelation is that the the victory of christ there initiates rather than concludes the conflict of the Christian life, the struggle of the Christian life. Uh, and because the sort of the mode of temporality at work in the, in the apocalypse is not worldly time, but it was a kind of heavenly time or something, a kind of theological time. Mm -hmm. The, um, the, the unfolding of that struggle is one that suffuses the worldly time of the Christian uh, and so every moment is a sort of moment of this conflict and of this struggle. And it's interesting to, to think of to think of of the desert saints as trying to attune themselves not just to God, but also then making sense of their life as the the, the clarity that their that their their ascetic practice, that their spiritual practice provides is not just a, an, an attunement to God, but also uh, a kind of turning to face the demonic in this form uh, as the sort of the agents of the the struggle, the conflict that is the Christian life in every moment, right? The yeah. Turning from sin, turning from temptation to to the will of God, um, and 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 thus also to the the fullness of one's humanity, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Um, yeah, they have. I mean, their understanding of what it is to be a Christian is to struggle is to struggle against evil against and for them the demonic and toward being fully human um to being the sort of human christ was right that we were actually created in the beginning to be in which christ is restored and, and all that and I, I think the american imagination about that kind of um what will, will come to be known as a kind of monastic existence um of of that kind of ascetic practice is that the the thing that you go that you with you withdraw from the sort of hustle and bustle of urban life and you go and you you go to be at peace right, right? to sort of clear things out and there's a kind of retail there's a kind of retail americanized buddhism in the background of that mm -hmm. right um but the picture you're painting is is <laughs> quite the opposite actually yeah, exactly. They're not going out for peace. They're going out looking for the struggle. Like, like I said, they, they assumed that the, the demons lived in the desert. They were going to go do battle with them. 
in order to purify their own souls, in a sense. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, I try not to make these conversations too practical. I'm not that interested in being helpful, uh, but I'm more interested in being interesting on this show, I should say. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, one of the things I've noticed and I've mentioned in a couple episodes is that the, that, that being in, in our homes, some of us with, with our, with our families, some of us by ourselves, some of us maybe with, with roommates, uh, it's become very clear to me that this imposes a huge spiritual task. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I like in the way you're framing it of thinking about it in terms of, of Liberty, because that's the kind of, that's the kind of bottleneck the whole thing goes through, which is a series of decisions I have to make about like, mm-hmm. am I going to spend my time? Am I going to like, am I going to shower today? Uh, you know, <laughs> am I going to do the, am I going to do the dishes that I didn't make that all those kinds of yeah. decisions um, but behind the bottleneck of those decisions is this kind of roiling struggle of uh, not, you know, I mean, we have Netflix and stuff, but, you know, not being able to go out and busy yourself with, with all the, the work of the day and having to face like, uh, how do I feel about myself? How do I feel about the people I'm with? How do I, you know, uh, how do I feel about the space that I'm in and can't flee from, you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and and well, so... You know, and and so it seems to me that we, you know, the, the what you're describing is an invitation to turn and face that spiritual challenge. Yeah, I mean, that was where I was going to head. So the other thing that they knew is when they would go out to the desert, they would meet themselves, right? Mm. Which is probably what most of us are afraid of. And they didn't have Netflix or music that they could pump through their house all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the desert was not only harsh, but but completely free of distraction. Um, aside from the sort of daily how to live, like day to day, making sure that you eat enough, although they fasted all the time, <laughs> making sure you eat enough to, to like stay alive. Aside from that, they, there were no distractions of life. Um, so thinking through, there are a lot of people now who suddenly most of their distractions in this time have been completely stripped away. Um, and and if you want to strip further away, you know, don't play music and don't watch Netflix for two days and see what happens. You're you'll meet yourself, and there is so yeah. This is an the desert scenes would invite us to face the struggle, um, and and it's another it we're, we are sort of in the same. So there were different ways of living in the desert. There were some who were out as hermits, and there would be some in like really small groups where you'd have five or six people. Uh, in a sort of small community with their cells uh, attached to the cell of a holy man or woman, um, sort of in small groups, you'd have uh, monasteries did start to spring up. So you'd have larger groups of community. And then the Syrians were just plain weird. Um, (laughs) Highlights on poles and some others who like were eating grass and they're just their own brand of whatever. But we also are finding ourselves in these very interesting different. So I live alone. I'm much more in the hermit right now and you're living with a family. And so you're more in that small group sort of, um, it's not the same, but yeah. what are the different temptations we are driven to? How do we meet ourselves? How do we meet God in this? How, like, maybe face the struggle and maybe face the, what, what could be here um, would be their invitation as opposed to just turning on Netflix and that's all we can do. So let's just distract ourselves that way now. Yeah. Well, let's take this as a chance to, to switch contexts a little bit then, because mm-hmm. One of the big differences, right, is that here we're precisely not withdrawing. Right. Uh, we're finding our isolation, uh, as I, I wrote in something recently, right, cheek to jowl. Yeah. You know, my neighbors are in their house and their neighbors are in their house. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's a certain amount of, you know, the, the urban or in our, our, a lot of our context, suburban, life is intact the structure is intact and and things the the machine is turning more slowly but it's still kind of turning around us and yet we still find here we are finding these same ancient struggles of meeting ourselves and so meeting the the demons who afflict us and also to um hopefully finding god present to us in that so you you've written and published a book it is uh with uh, with InterVarsity Press, Chrysostom's Devil, Demons, the Will, and Virtue in Patristic Soteriology. And uh, I'll include a link to it in the, in the show notes if people want to check it out. 
how how do these same questions show up in Chrysostom? Chrysostom, t- tell us a little bit about who Chrysostom is, what his context was, and then and then maybe we can get into these uh, these connected questions. Yeah, yeah. Chrysostom, um, they're connected mostly because Chrysostom wanted to be a desert monk and uh, did for a couple of years, fasted a little bit too hard. And he was a bit of an intense person and uh, <laughs> actually injured like his organs because he Ooh. fasted too much. And so he had to go back and that was, then they kidnapped him and ordained him because not because it was Chrysostom, because that's what they did to people to ordain them at the time, which I kind of still <laughs> wish we could. But, um, so Kier- John Kier- lived, sorry. I was going to say, uh, Kierkegaard has this great line about uh, how at his time in his place, people, people were very clear that like, being a poet is something that you needed some kind of vocation to. Like you yeah. couldn't just be like, Oh, I'm just going to go become a poet. Like, no, there's like, you have to have like a certain disposition. You have to commit yourself to it. And it's like a special right. kind of, there's, there's a je ne sais quoi about being a poet, but priests, ah, whatever. Right. Anybody sign right. them up. Uh, yeah. And I do kind of like the flip side of that coin, which is people going, no, 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 you're, you're, you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I really, I think we, we have would, discerned. Yeah. Right. Um, it's a very communal discernment at the time. Um, yeah, so John Chrysostom lives, he's 347 to 407. So he's living, um, he, he's ordained as a deacon, as like a reader in the church in 381, which is um, when Christianity becomes the state religion in, no, excuse me, that's the Council of Constantinople. Um, and then right around the time Christianity is becoming the state religion, not just legal in Rome, in the empire. Um, but he lives, uh, he's, Syrian, um, sort of Asia Minor, and in 386 he becomes a priest in Antioch in Syria, and in 397 he's ordained bishop of Constantinople. So he's like the head of the Eastern Church, um, and he so he preaches to, and he's known. Chrysostom is not his last name; it's a nickname, the Golden Mouth. So he's known for his preaching. Um, people would come to hear him. He was he was. Just, I mean, most of what we have from his corpus is sermons and there people would come and they would listen for an hour um and he would just preach through scriptures on topics whatever um but he preached a lot about virtue he preached a lot about alms giving his big thing was was just give alms um all the time um be virtuous um and uh and he also talked a lot about demons um but he wanted so before he was ordained he wanted to be an ascetic so he went to live there were monks who would live in the mountains just outside antioch they're like right up against the way antioch is geographically the city is right up against the foot of these mountains and so the monks would just live in the mountains instead of going the egyptian desert is where you can go but in syria they go up to the mountains and um his mom wouldn't let him. He didn't want to, like, he, could, he, he couldn't do it until she passed away. And then he went up to the mountains and he was part of this, like, three or four person small group apprentice to, to a holy man. And, uh, and was just, he's a very intense personality. Um, did He, like, said to have memorized the entire New Testament, half of the old. Um, he said, the legend says he didn't sit down for, like, he stood for two years, um, keep vigils and like, you know, fasted so hard, but he injured his health doing this. So he had to go back in the city and that's when they ordained him. Um, and then at the end of his life, what happened was he, as an intense personality who, uh, he's head of the church in like, he's the head bishop and is not at all a politician. So he calls out the empress for like being a little too adorned and and caring too much about how she looks and whatever. Um, while she's in the congregation, he does this in a sermon. Um, and the Empress is not like this, so she exiles him. Um, and then something there's we're not really sure what the misfortune is, whether she has a miscarriage or there's an earthquake or something. There's there's it's unclear what it was, but something happens and she feels like God is judging her for or punishing her for having exiled Christendom. So she calls wow. him back in like a month later. Um, but then he does it again and he calls it out, <laughs> out again. And so the second time when she exiles him, he's out for like, I want to say 18 months or something. And he dies on that one of the horse marches out there in one of the winters. It's just too much for his health. Um, but that's the sort of person he was. And yeah. uh, that makes knowing that makes a little bit more sense about when he says virtue is easy, just choose it. You're like, well, you know, <laughs> maybe for you. <laughs> When he talks about virtue, what are the virtues he has in mind? Um, he doesn't tell you most of the time. 
like it's it's fascinating he really just says be virtuous more than anything else um the the ones that he talks about most are he wants he tells people all the time stop going to the theater stop going to the races all come to church um that's one of his big the things he one of the things he hammers a lot um but he it's more about resist so he's it's he's an interesting figure because he's doing the same sort of casting his anthropology in terms of demonology um that the monks are doing but he's then using all so they don't use the language of the philosophers and the theologians um they're theologians too but in the in the sort of gregory of nyssa sense of that but chrysostom does he's going to use words like virtue and um his big word that i talk a lot sort of for this is uh pro racist uh, which is this faculty of choice that mm. everyone has in their soul. Um, and he's going to use all that really technical language, but he's going to do the same sort of idea that the aesthetics are doing, which is a really fascinating part of him. Um, but when he's talking about this, so he's always talking about when he talks about demons, he's usually doing it to encourage his people to be virtuous. But all he says is be virtuous. Um, he'll talk about don't you know let us not neglect our salvation for nothing is as important as virtue virtue is what we bring to our salvation after christ has done all the all the really important parts um but he doesn't tell you what it is it it sort of it might be sort of depends on what he's preaching on too um and so it might giving alms is definitely a virtue he cares about um not being lazy is one of his big ones he really he's always telling it be vigilant and stop being lazy it's laziness that causes the devil to fall um, mm. except in this sermon he's giving on pride when then it's pride who's that called the caused the devil to fall um but it's laziness against uh, laziness um in in discernment in paying attention to where the devil is and what the devil's trying to tempt and deceive in you um but he sort of just assumes you know which is really interesting he yeah sort of assumes you know what the virtues are and and what what you should be doing at any given moment, but he is very practical. So it's not, he's not talking like theological virtues so much. He's really talking like, yeah, give alms. Don't go to the theater. Um, read the Bible to your children at home. Um, these sorts of really practical things. Um, take care of the, the beggars on the street sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and, and even, but you know, even those exhortations, right. The sort of withdrawal from, the spectacles of imperial life mm-hmm. um is it you know is a is a kind of echo of, of the desert saints yeah um, yeah Christmas thing is he wants everyone to imitate the monks in the de- for him the monks in the mountains um he wants everyone to imitate them but to do it where they are in the cities he's like you don't he says you don't have to go out there to do it go out and look at them and then come back and imitate their life right here it's actually yeah. going to be harder for you to do it in the city he says um but you should live exactly the same life with the concession that you can get married yeah interesting you talked about god has done sort of the important christ has done the important mm-hmm. part when it comes to salvation and then the thing we bring is is choosing virtue in the way you talked mm-hmm. about it um so what's the What's, do you have some sense of that there's an economy of salvation operating behind that? And, and how's, how's he thinking about that? Yeah. Um, his, his understanding of salvation is, he says over and over, um, it's, it's God does his part and we have to bring our part. And, and Christ's part is life, death, or life, you know, incarnation, life, death, resurrection. And this has affected our salvation. Um, in his baptismal instructions, he talks about it as um, when we are baptized, we enter the Christian life, we enter the arena of struggle. Mm. Um, so, so the Christian life, again, is a struggle. And he talks about it as it's a struggle with the devil, but Christ has bound the devil hand and foot in chains. So he's sort of hobbling around. And Christ is the judge, but, but he's not in a judge like in the gladiatorial contests or whatever. Who stands aloof he said no christ is on your side so he's in the arena with you and when you fall he'll pick you up again um and he's already chained the devil and all this so christ has done all the work um it's, he's definitely in the christus victor sort of atonement model um just everyone at the time was um but christ has done that has defeated the devil has made it possible for us to choose virtue that's his other part is um christ he says, made over our prior races, that faculty of choice has made it possible to choose virtue again 
um, because we had it in the beginning. He talks about Adam and Eve walking in the garden with abundance and, and a detachment. They just, they weren't concerned about their bodies. They weren't concerned about anything earthly. They had a heavenly reality. Um, and that's what we're aiming back at. That's what Christ made it possible for us to do again. And so he thinks the monks are living the heavenly life on earth because of their properly ordered attachments, not his language, but their properly ordered yeah. attachments. Um, and we're aiming back at that. So Christ has made all that possible and we have to, bring our part, which in some places he says is faith, in some places he says is virtue, in some places he says is both. Um, but we have to bring this and sort of show ourselves worthy of it. So in his baptismal stuff, he'll talk about, we've been given the robe, we have to keep it clean. That, that white Oh, interesting. Yeah. Clean. Okay. This way. Uh, but he will say, he goes, virtue is easy. Like you just choose it. <laughs> and and it, I mean, I know he's preaching. So I know he's like, when you preach, you don't want to give all the nuance. Like you want to tell, you want to encourage people. It is easy. You can just choose against the temptation, but I don't know. It sounds a little harsh sometimes. <laughs> no, I suppose, um, I, su- I suppose there's a certain respect in which having, having chosen it, it is easy. It is easy. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which, which is, the, you know, it is to gloss over what is in fact the hard part. Um, which is the, the struggle, the conflict, right? Yeah. The, 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 the drama of, of your, your liberty. Um, mm. and, and so then, you know, I, I keep going, I keep in my mind going back to the discussion I had with Anne, right. That, that, so the victory of Christ, is the thing that returns your liberty to you mm-hmm. and being in possession of the liberty is the thing that empowers you to engage in the struggle, mm-hmm. right. The struggle to choose virtue. Yeah. Um, to not give into temptation, to not succumb to deception, and so on. Um, and so that's you know I think that's hard. That's hard to to grok both because of our our modern habits of mind, um, but also because it it reframes Christ's victory in a way that uh, is maybe less consoling than we <laughs> we would like. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, like I said with Anne, it's, it's not consoling in the sense that Christ, uh, you know, I, I grew up sort of evangelical and, and there was a lot of that kind of let go and let God stuff. And my question yep. always was like, how? Yeah, me too. Like, con- concretely. What, like, what does that mean? It sounds nice, I guess, but like, yeah, but what do I do? Yeah. Um, and, and so to say, well, uh, yeah, what, what that really means is like, uh, yeah, let God take care of, the establishment of your freedom and then get down to business. <laughs> it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and like, it's not to deny that then Christ is to, like, that's not to say we're just Pelagians either. Right. No, no, no. Aside no. from the fact that Christendom is before Pelagius, so we couldn't be a Pelagian, but um, it's, people will make that argument and it bothers me. He's, he's, oh, he's, nothing, nothing, a little prefix hand-waving. He's proto-Pelagian. Right, no problem. Right. We solved it. <laughs> yes. Um, it's not that because Christ is with us in that arena. I keep going exactly. back. Just, he's got this. It's just such a vivid image when he gives us that. It's, it's no Christ. Like when you screw up, Christ is helping you right. back up and back to continue to do this. So, so it's not just us on our own trying to do this, but it is. Yeah. It's, I ask the same question all the time to my youth pastors. Like, what do you, like, what do you mean when you say that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. And they usually told me to read my Bible more. Well, um, oh, yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah. But what does that thing mean? Right. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm hearing I'm hearing two levels then, right? That it's it's not Pelagian in two respects. It's there's a kind of fundamental level at which it's not Pelagian because I wouldn't be in this conflict at all if it weren't for the the victorious uh, the the victory of Christ. Right. Right. And then furthermore, in the conflict, I'm not abandoned by Christ. Right. 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 It's not a kind of it's not a kind of Liberty Dayism where like okay, here's your freedom, good luck, kid. Right. But you are responsible. Yes, it is. It is uh, with that help. It is up to you. Um, and so, you know, I, I have more, more training in sort of medieval theology and stuff. And so, you know, eventually you do have to you have this long running tradition of a question of merit. Yeah. Um, and uh, of meriting eternal life. And it's a part of the tradition for a long time. And it's, you know, it's maybe Albert the Great kind of works out a solution. But you really until Thomas's synthesis on on grace and liberty, you don't you don't quite have a kind of theoretical model of how that works out, right? You can have Chrysostom giving you these, these practical exhortations, but answering those speculative questions of like, yeah, yeah, but like how, <laughs> how does yeah. this work? That takes, you know, that takes a thousand years, 900 yeah. years. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we're just not to that point with Chrysostom, right? Like they've only right. just settled the Council of Constantinople. We're not even to Chalcedon with Chrysostom. So their so their questions are they're just more concerned about other questions at the moment. Totally um, trying to figure out who Christ is. Um, but they, oh, I, had, I had a thought. Oh yeah, responsibility. Um, yeah. So his whole thing about responsibility is because of this freedom, we are responsible. And so that's what he keeps hammering when he's hammering this choice with his congregant. So he, he also really loves the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Um, and he'll preach about, look, it wasn't the devil. Like partly he's also always telling his congregation, stop blaming the devil for your sin. (laughs) Um, and the devil is not ruling the world. God is still in charge. Um, he's doing a lot of that, but when he talks about the sheep and the goats, it's like, no, it's your choice. It's, it's the choice that separates them. He says it, it was their pro racist that caused the one set to go to, to hell and the other set to go to heaven. Um, it's, it's about choice. And, and, and his whole thing is you're, we know this because, because of that recompense that there's a judgment at the end that, um, it would be, if we trust that God is just, it would be unjust if God were to punish for something we didn't do. So therefore we are responsible. And in our freedom, we really are responsible. It is our choice. So um, it's all about moral responsibility for him in this. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thanks. Uh, is there anything before we wrap up, anything I didn't ask you about that I should have or, or that you, you definitely want to mention before we call it a day? I don't think so. Okay. No problem. Well, hey, so one more time. The, the name of the book is Chrysostom's Devil, Demons, the Will and Virtue in Patristic Soteriology. Uh, Thank you, Samantha Miller, for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. So if y'all want to comment on the show or share it, you can find us at Systematic Pod on Twitter. Or if you want to send us an email, it's systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Now that we're back up and running and doing these things and we've, we've got a number of shows out, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing the show or even just going in and giving it the five-star thing, um, tell people about it. You know, everybody's, everybody's in their house everybody's taking long walks to try and get some fresh air. And I hope these conversations might provide some, uh, well, you know, distraction, (laughs) but also maybe edification. We'll see. Um, And then uh, as always, our music is track 14 off of ghost two by nine inch nails. So while you're in your house, washing your hands and not touching your face, be attentive. 